This morning's scripture comes from 1 John chapter 1, verses 3 through 10. We declare to you what we have seen and heard, so that you also may have fellowship with us. And truly, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. God is light. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him while we are walking in darkness, we lie and do not do what is true. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he who is faithful and just will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Thank you for that beautiful reading. And now I would invite you to bow your heads with me for a moment of prayer. Creator God, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be pleasing in your sight. And though I may fumble and my words may come out wrong, I pray you find a way to use them anyways, to bring light into the darkness and to bring hope to the hopeless. Show us where there is room for us here, O Lord, and guide us in your truth. Amen. This week, we are continuing our sermon series titled uh, from the United Methodists of Greater New Jersey. Always have to shout out to New Jersey because of Chris. And the title of the sermon series is called To More. This Lent, we are invited to see all of the ways that we can live into our calling as the people of God and to recognize the ways that we have fallen short of that calling. At the root of our calling is a singular notion that we are meant to be in good relationship with God and neighbor. But in order to do that, we have to take this time and this season to face within us what makes our own relationships falter and fail. This week, our scripture calls us to do that internal reckoning, to stop deceiving ourselves and to confess our sins. It calls us to be vulnerable with ourselves and with one another in pursuit of that fellowship that we hear so often about in our texts. But this scripture holds a special place in my heart for a very simple reason. It was the first scripture I ever wrote a sermon on. A decade ago, when I was an intern and I didn't even have the confidence to name my sermon sermons, I wrote a speech that I titled, Shame. I was serving Trinity United Methodist Church, a flagship church And it was the first church I had ever served in any ministry capacity. 
It was located in the heart of downtown Denver, had hundreds of members, and an even bigger reputation. Trinity was one of the first churches in the state, and technically, it predates the state of Colorado even existing, so it was a pretty safe assumption that just the idea of me preaching there to a couple of hundred people the day after Christmas had me shaken like a dog during the 4th of July fireworks. Literally. But in addition to that pressure and those nerves and the general bad luck that I had had in public speaking prior to that, I was shaken for a whole other reason. You see, I had decided in a moment of possible insanity or possible inspiration, I will let you decide uh, to begin my preaching career with one simple thing that has been done by Christians for the past couple millennia. I decided to start my career with a confession. To start your career with that feels a bit like an omen of sorts, but I will tell you honestly, I still have no idea what that omen actually means. But I can tell you that that act of confession is one I still have dreams about. So I went back and I searched for that first sermon. And this morning, I would like to offer you an updated version, since some of the things I confessed are just not very relevant anymore. But more than I would like to admit are still relevant and still things that I need to confess. So here today, I would like to offer you my confession. I confess to God Almighty before the whole company of heaven and to you, my brothers and sisters, that I have sinned in thought. I have thought myself better than others out of nothing more than sheer pride. I have worried about my appearance, getting bigger, growing a baby, adding wrinkles with age and more than a few gray hairs from toddlers and teenagers. I have blamed God for unpleasantness that I brought on myself. I have yelled at my husband internally for not picking his clothes up off the floor. I have forgotten how much I need God to see my way out of my own brokenness. I have sinned by my words. I have spoken out of malice. I have spoken out of pride and distrust. I have lied to make my own life easier. I have been insensitive. And I admit there are times I think I have been mean. And I have sinned by my deed, by my own fault. I tried to speak about something more comfortable to suit my own fear this morning. I didn't, but I tried. By my own fault, I have yelled in my car at people who have cut me off in traffic. By my own grievous fault. I have not always helped those in need when I know I should. I have tried to run away from God's will for me and for my life. I have been lazy and not done my homework or my housework well enough. Sorry, honey. 
I have heard the call from others and I have not responded. I have hurt my friends by my inaction. I have judged too harshly. I have failed. Therefore, I pray God Almighty to have mercy on me, to forgive all of my sins, and to bring me into everlasting life and love. Amen. There you have it. A few of my own dirty little secrets. You're probably not too surprised, but I am flawed. I have sinned, and I am still broken. When I gave this original confession, I also confessed that in sharing it in front of a room full of strangers and friends, airing my dirty laundry, if you will, um, that the act filled me with fear and shame, even as I stuttered through every word. I confess to you that it is a little bit easier now because I know and love most of you, and I can trust you, I believe, with the broken pieces of me. And I'd like to think I've gotten a little bit better at it, too. But still, there is a tickle in the back of my throat and a niggling in the back of my mind that I know by name now. His name is Shame. Shame and I, we are old friends. You may have heard me dismiss him in the past because I would like to dismiss him fully, but the truth is we've known each other for a lot longer than I'd care to admit. See, I grew up in a small town church where everyone's secrets were fair game, and my family had not been in that church, in that community for the past hundred years, which meant that from the moment I was born, I was already an outsider. I had to keep my business close to the chest, and by the time I was five, I had a church face in place. I knew the church as a place of love, don't get me wrong. I had seen it in action, mainly in the language of food. Um, that is how we communicate with one another, um, to say the words that we may struggle to say out loud. I'm here for you. I'm sorry for your loss. I'm excited for you. And I want to believe that we had the fellowship with one another that the author of 1 John was talking about. But Lord, save me if I ever shed an honest tear in church outside of a funeral. Growing up in the north, in Wisconsin specifically, and in farm country, meant that you didn't see a lot of tears even when a man lost half his cattle and thereby his livelihood in a snowstorm, or when someone had a nasty divorce or fell into seasons of depression every winter, people didn't show that kind of pain to one another. And as a child, not seeing it made me scared. Scared that my sadness meant weakness, that it meant I was less, less tough, less 
cool and that ultimately I didn't belong in that church family. And I carried that fear with me into my adolescence when, like many adolescents, I began to question my faith from the back pew. I wondered if those miracles could possibly be real or if that pain life gives all of us ever did end up serving a purpose. That fear and that shame ultimately disconnected me entirely from my church family. The fear that my questions would leave me unloved and that my doubts would leave me left out. What's funny is right smack dab in the middle of that, I heard the call to ministry when I wasn't in a church and I was running actively in the opposite direction. So when I heard it at first, I told myself that I could not possibly be a pastor because pastors are not allowed to be full of doubt and shame. Being a pastor clearly required more than I had to give because being a pastor meant that I wasn't allowed to be a broken or a flawed person anymore. Man, if that girl could see me now. But to be honest, that girl wouldn't have believed me if I told her there was room for fear and doubt in church. And she definitely wouldn't have believed me if I told her that shame had the potential to choke and die in church too, or at least that it could. Although I had seen people bring their concerns to the community, and then I had seen the community accept them, I failed to see church as a place for people to bring their brokenness, their shame, and their guilt, and their sadness. People didn't talk about how they'd lost their job, or how they had mountains of debt, or how their spouse had left them, or how they had just been beaten down and broken by our world. And at the time, I believed that if there was no room for brokenness, there certainly was no room for me. But, <clears throat> but, my mother knew otherwise because mothers always do. I hope I know those kinds of things when my kids need me to because my mother always seems to know the right thing to say and the right thing to do. And what she did when she heard my call and saw me run in the opposite direction was bug the living daylights out of me. <laughs> she didn't stop. And she finally elbowed her friend and a chaplain at the local jail to give me a chance to work with him for the summer. And during that time, I ended up helping out with the alcohol and drug addiction support groups during their AA and DA meetings. And it was where I saw people show up exactly as they were broken by their own choices and the choices others had made for them. It was there I saw people show up alienated and alone, full of shame and fear and regret, but perhaps most importantly, I saw them show up with more compassion than I have seen anywhere else in the world, bar none. 
It was there where I witnessed my first true confessions, and I learned why they had been a part of the Christian tradition for so long. It wasn't for the shame. It wasn't for the guilt. It was for the light. There, in the walls of that jail common room, I saw the truth about shame for the first time. Shame thrives in the dark, but shame dies in the light. It cannot survive once the light of love and understanding shine in. In those meetings, they spoke about what had broken them. They carved out their shame and they put it in front of their peers, and it was brutal. It was an uncomfortable act, laying out their deepest hurts and their greatest fears. It forced them to feel every bit of that hurt again. But in turn, they were seen, they were understood, and loved fully. In the words of Brene Brown, if we can share our story with someone who responds with empathy and understanding, shame cannot survive. Later on in my ministry career, after facing down a lot of the shame and guilt that I had carried with me along the way, I found more words from that Brene Brown lady that I quote far more often than I probably should. To paraphrase her, She describes shame as something that we believe makes us inherently bad, that there is inherently something wrong with us, something that makes us unworthy of love and connection. Now, guilt, by comparison, is the recognition that we have done something at odds with our values. It's an uncomfortable feeling, but it actually serves a purpose. And that's where we find the difference between the two. Shame says you could not possibly be loved, but guilt reminds you that it is your duty to love yourself and your neighbor, no matter what. After all that time trying to run and hide from shame, I realized that it just didn't have a place within me at all. I think a part of what caused that shame in the first place was a misunderstanding about what sin really is. It is not a prescribed list of do's and don'ts, rules that we must follow or else. Sin is whatever stands in between us and good relationship. God's desire for the world is love and peace and grace and harmony with God and neighbor and self. If there's a belief or action that gets in the way of you loving God or neighbor, it's going to get in between you and loving yourself. Shame says that relationship is just not possible, that we can't or we won't or that we are incapable. But God shines a light on all of us. And God's light shows us that shame is a lie. 
Shame has no place here. None at all. Even shame itself ends up being sinful because it makes us self-focused, self-absorbed. That we must be the problem, that we are so bad and so unworthy of love. It separates us from reality. But guilt does the opposite. It recognizes that we are individuals capable of doing bad things, but that those things don't define us. Guilt makes us uncomfortable, and that is why it serves a purpose. It moves you to not make those choices again. Is it uncomfortable and painful at times? You betcha. And that's the point. Discomfort begets change. If you are walking and there is a rock in your shoe, you don't leave the rock there. You stop and get it out and then keep walking. I think the true line I have seen between sin and righteousness in my years isn't really good and evil. Those Goalposts are fairly nebulous and actually move and shift with time and understanding. The line between sin and righteousness is selfishness versus selflessness. And it's why Christians have been participating in that sacred act of confession, of sharing our failings and finding a new way forward for a couple thousand years now. It's because it works. It changes us. It puts our focus outside of ourselves and says, I have done wrong, but God and my community deserve better. And that change is exactly what is asked of us in every page of the gospel. A change of heart that leads to a change of life, that leads to a change in the whole community. I don't know if you know this or not, but the Methodist mission that's in every book of discipline is that we are made for the creation of disciples, for the transformation of the world. We are meant to be the ones making changes for the better in our relationships, in our communities, and in our wider world. But we can't do that with broken and scared hearts. We can't change the world when we are hiding in the dark. So your homework this week is the same as mine was, to confess, to bring to the light what wants to hide in the dark, to not let shame tell your story anymore, and instead to let the light of compassion stream in. It sounds simple in theory, but anyone who's given it an honest shot knows it's anything but. There is nothing simple about letting the hidden parts of ourselves come out into the light. But there is nothing more worth it. I can promise you that on the other side of that worry and even that pain, that there is something beautiful waiting for each and every one of you 
So I invite you this morning to come and walk in the light. There is room for you here. There will always be room for you here. I pray that these have been the words of the Lord for us this day. Amen.